0: Welcome to the Biopractica professional podcast series. Biopractica is an Australian-owned, practitioner-only brand focusing on nutritional and herbal products proven to play a role in preventative medicine. Biopractica is committed to supporting healthcare professionals in developing their knowledge and skills so they can confidently and effectively tackle the major health challenges facing their patients today. To support this commitment, the Learning Hub was established by Biopractica offer practitioners a collection of educational resources so they can stay informed on the latest in health science research. Hello and welcome to our regular listeners, new listeners and of course to my brilliant co-host Claire Murray.
1: Hey Paul, how are you going today?
0: Yeah, I'm very well and how are you? I'm
1: good, I'm good, I'm keeping warm.
0: Keeping warm in Queensland? I thought you were, I thought The weather took care of that for you up there.
1: Yes, I must admit, it's been some pretty glorious winter days here.
0: Ah, Perfect. Well, hopefully you've been outside and uh, reading through a paper titled Emerging Research on NAC for the Management of Psychiatric Disorders. Have you been doing that?
1: Yes. (laughs) It's been my (laughs) delightful sunshine reading on the steps getting my vitamin d in um yes no we're looking at a paper today aren't we something a little bit different for us but it's an interesting one it kind of is review I suppose that looks at NAC as an intervention for a whole host of psychiatric Mm -hmm. disorders which is definitely being kind of I suppose, I don't know how long ago, like five, ten plus years ago, started to, I suppose, emerge as quite a novel use for NAC. I think it kind of started out as that mucolytic detoxifying Mm. effect and then rapidly, you know, I think as a profession, we were pretty obsessed with NAC a couple of years ago. Like there was kind of nothing it couldn't do. But yes, this paper is by an author called Bradlow and a few other authors, and it was published last year. So we thought it could maybe just be an interesting thing, maybe do some of the heavy lifting for those listening and kind of go through some of the evidence and just chat on some interesting takeaways, I suppose, from, mm-hmm. from this paper.
0: And, look, I think it is a fascinating paper because if you understand the history of NAC, you know, I think it was sort of, I'll say, first uh, came to light in the 1960s, you know, and, and that was as a medicine, you know, um, mm. so it's it's been around for, you know, 63 years now. It's now something that's, I'll say, used by, as we know, you know, many people and, you know, one of the key things certainly is it's, uh, you know, anti sort of mucolytic effects as such. But I don't think a lot of people, I, I know they've been taught, talk about using it in cases of uh, mental health. But I was excited to see this um, this sort of paper because it's the first thing that I've really found that is tangible and is talking really closely about NAC and mental health disorders. So, do you want to sort of just go through basically what the role of, say, NAC is or its influence in mental health disorders?
1: So, you know, it really does kind of, I suppose, pertain to the things that we know NAC was doing in the rest of the body. But yeah. primarily, as we know, NAC, like you said, you know, I, I found that kind of its origin story really fascinating. Like it, they, mm. researchers or scientists took the cysteine amino acid, like the molecule, and added that acetyl group onto it. And then, uh, you know, as a treatment, like as a, as a pharmaceutical drug, almost in a way yeah, for right. cystic fibros- fibrosis. Patients to kind of have that mucolytic effect. So, you know, we've then kind of amassed this amazing body of evidence that it is doing so many things. But a lot of it still comes back to that key effect that it has as that antioxidant. So we know that cysteine is that rate limiting amino acid or step for the production of glutathione. So there's that element. But we also know that NAC, in and of itself, can scavenge free radicals as well. So you know if you if you see a little bit of mental health in clinic or if you've kind of dived into some of the drivers behind it like we can kind of start to see this perfect storm in a way start to develop kind of in the brain or in the central nervous system where if there is an increase in immune activation in the brain and you know inflammation how much then that starts to produce a high level of oxidative stress you know we can go into all of this a little bit more but NAC crosses the blood-brain barrier, and so it can help to really meet some of the things that start to drive mental health issues. So right. it's antioxidant, it can start to, you know, calm down that cytokine activity and have that anti-inflammatory response. We know that those two then hugely influence mitochondrial health. So it can really help to reverse mitochondrial dysfunction in the brain. And that is like not to be minimized at all when it comes to mental health because. How, you know, the brain has the most dense concentration of mitochondria, like there's trillions and trillions of mitochondria in there. So if they're dysfunctional, like that's not a happy brain, it can help mm. to reduce apoptosis. It can help to kind of modulate glutamate, which will, you know, touch on mm. a few times Very important. and it can also increase neurogenesis, you know, which I think is the overall effect of, okay, Mm. we've got some NAC, it's reducing oxidative stress, it's reducing inflammation, that then helps Mm. those neurons to kind of repair, sprout, grow, you know, develop new neural pathways that it was maybe struggling to before. So Mm. uh, when you get into the science, it is fascinating and it is amazing what NAC can actually do in the brain and how it, it, like the potential role that it can play in supporting mental health conditions.
0: Oh, look, look, absolutely. And, and, you know, I I think realising... You know, we all know about the blood-brain barrier, um, but you know, realizing that NAC is usable, you know, partially because it affects and its ability to actually move through the blood-brain barrier really, you know, helps. I think people understand why and how it, it can be so beneficial. But actually, the term I want to use is not beneficial. Why it can actually be potentially so powerful for people? Mm. do do you want to just cover some of the really basic mechanisms that they're sort of looking at you know being associated with driving some of the different mental health issues because we know there's a a number of different ones and some of them are i'll call it very physiological
1: so yeah i mean if we're keeping in mind that we are reviewing this paper by bradlow first and foremost Mm. you know and we're kind Mm. of Using a lot of the disc- like the the content of that paper that we're kind yeah. of teasing apart and discussing here, I think that the paper focused quite a bit on the mechanisms that were relevant to NAC and that NAC yeah. kind of influenced. But you'll see these mechanisms come up again and again if you ever kind of delve into the functional drivers or the pathogenesis behind you know a lot of mental health conditions. And so, yeah. I've touched on a lot of them already, just describing yeah. what NAC does, but a really mm. core driver of mental health issues is that oxidative stress it can a little bit of oxidative stress can stimulate glutathione production and mm. glutathione is the primary endo- endogenous antioxidant in the brain but a lot of oxidative stress will then deplete glutathione our body's yeah. not going to be able to yeah. come up with it and you know we just we know how lipid rich and they're kind of mm-hmm. therefore kind of uh what's the word like vulnerable I guess susceptible. That, that,
0: yeah Susceptible to damage, vulnerable, yep, absolutely.
1: Susceptible is a perfect word. You know, we start Mm. to have a high level of oxidative stress in the brain, how it's kind of damaging those lipids. Mm. It can impact the respiratory chain, like producing, you know, just baseline energy in the mitochondria, and it can start to kind of modify and damage the DNA in there. Mm -hmm. But inflammation, Mm. I know I've done a webinar with sometime this year, I believe it was. Just kind of discussing that link between mental health and inflammation and that mm. there is definitely a subset of people whose mm. mental health disorders, especially things like depression and schizophrenia, can be driven by raised inflammatory markers. We know that neuroinflammation will then start to increase oxidative stress and it will start to damage cells, etc. And we've actually seen NAC able to reduce inflammatory cytokines in the brain, things like TNF-alpha, NF-kappa-B, some of the interleukins. Right. And, a re- and an interesting mechanism, which I knew, and I feel like this explained it to me in a different way as well, this paper, is that um, NAC will also modulate glutamate levels. Mm-hmm. And we know that glutamate, you know, a huge majority of the receptors in the brain are for glutamate, and that we know mm-hmm. that it's excitatory, and can skip over pretty easily for our mental health patients into being excitotoxic, like Mm. starting to cause damage and inflammation in the brain. But there's actually this cysteine glutamate transporter on cells Mm. where in the presence of extracellular cysteine, so we provide that Mm -hmm. NAC and we've got a higher pool of cysteine sitting outside the cell, this transporter Mm. will actually transport the cysteine into the cell into to become intracellular cysteine and mm-hmm. it will actually mm-hmm. transport glutamate out of the cell right and so that will actually decrease the synaptic release of glutamate and so it has that overall mm. effect on kind of dampening down wow an excessive or you know glutamate response so i felt like that was a really cool mechanism to read out mm. read on i definitely mm. nerded out about that one
0: no, I think it's I think it's really important, and you know, I think most practitioners have seen patients that have I'll say issues with I'll call it generally over or overall, overall higher levels of glutamate, uh, and mm. that it is neuroexcitatory, and and that for people who, for example, you know, there's some patients I know where I've had to put them on low glutamate diets, and their, you know, their headaches have decreased substantially. So, you know, there, there's there's a number of you know, and I, I wouldn't have considered necessarily using NAC in those patients. But, but now that, you know, you, you talk about it and having read this paper, it's like, well, okay, here's absolutely, you know, if I know people have potentially nervous system and glutamate kind of issues, that absolutely I could be, could be looking at using it. Do you want to quickly cover what some of the other conditions the actual paper itself looks at though?
1: Yes. So this is actually a lot of info. So we can see how far mm. we get hey, and how many conditions we Let, get to. Let's see but... how we go. Yeah. First one they discussed was autism spectrum disorders. And they Mm -hmm. discussed how, you know, uh, evidence shows that ASD can be associated with increased oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, abnormal glutamate, neurotransmission, those things that we've been talking about. And Mm -hmm. so they then start to get into the evidence. They found some case studies of NAC And I think this will be really fascinating as we go through this kind of the quite huge variance in dosages that you encounter with NAC administration. These case studies where they gave NAC to males, children through to adolescent males with ASD, a dose anywhere from 800 to 2,400 milligrams a day showed a benefit, showed increases in social behavior decreases in aggression and self-harm, and it Mm -hmm. actually facilitated lowering doses of antipsychotics for some of the participants as well. So I found that Mm -hmm. really fascinating. And then there was a meta-analysis done on five randomized control trials that used NAC and ASD, again, children and adolescents. Doses varied anywhere from 500 to 4,200 milligrams a day Mm -hmm. And they found that NAC did actually significantly improve behaviour scores, irritability and Mm -hmm. hyperactivity compared to placebo. So I think it's showing there that NAC, you know, and it's all mechanistic, but we hear a lot of mm -hmm. talk about that kind of involvement with neuroinflammation in our ASD Mm -hmm. patients, you know, and I think NAC really meets that neuroinflammation Mm -hmm. well and the downstream effects of that that it has on oxidative stress and and mitochondria so that makes a lot of sense to me
0: look absolutely and and I know another um, uh, aspect of mental health that was covered in in this paper was schizophrenia and Mm -hmm. of course you know how how exactly do we define that because you know some people say oh isn't is isn't it just voices in your head or or, or those sorts of things but you know I, I just want to quickly define it because it's actually defined as an abnormal interpretation of reality, which affects how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. Now it then goes on, so it then goes on to say they can experience the delusions, possibly disorganized thinking and speech, abnormal physical behaviour, motor function. But you know, uh, schizophrenia isn't may be quite as rare as we might think you know there's a certain there's you know Mm. i've seen a number of patients who you know were were successfully you know controlling their schizophrenia but it's certainly not something it's like oh never seen anyone with schizophrenia at all so Mm. what did the paper sort of look at in regard to nac and schizophrenia because look once again I, i i haven't been using that with any of these patients but then again i i'll be honest with you i'm, I'm careful in how i treat them but but what did the papers yes. sort of look at
1: yeah so they did talk about that definition of schizophrenia and that their condition then may be characterized by neuroprogression, and that was a kind of new term for oh. me but that's really just a term that summarizes changes that start to happen to the nervous system that accompany the development of a mental health mm. disorder and these changes mm. that they're talking about is everything that we've already been saying like free radical Um, mediated neurotoxicity, inflammation, apoptosis, issues with your mitochondria, and then that reduction in neurogenesis. So they're all talking about that they are really key drivers behind, you know, for some individual person where that happens to the brain and then for them that manifests as that kind of disruption with their or that abnormal interpretation of reality. So looking at the evidence They found that doing MRIs in patients with schizophrenia showed that they Mm. had compromised glutathione levels in their prefrontal cortex, which is where we do a lot of our kind of rationalizing, you know, and that a single dose of NAC at 2,400 milligrams Mm. decreased glutamate Mm. in the brain in schizophrenic patients. So some interesting tidbits there mm. and then another five randomised controlled t- trials were kind of looked at and analysed as well and this is where mm. we t- like start to find this kind of variance in trial length as well that at mm. eight weeks administering NAC did not have a significant effect on mm. symptom schizophrenic symptom scales. However, mm. at 24 mm. weeks it did. So, right. That's where, and the doses used in those randomized control trials were anywhere from 1,000 to 3,600 mm-hmm. milligrams a day. And, you know, this right. is something we can kind of touch on at the end, but I think when it comes to NAC and mental health, mm-hmm. it's not a quick fix, you know, we, we mm-hmm. need mm-hmm. to take it for that longer period of time.
0: Yeah, 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 uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I did also note, though, they do talk about it in uh, in the paper that actually can, Significantly improve working memory of people that diagnosed with schizophrenia as well. So, yes, you know, and and I I didn't find uh, any data specifically on NAC and just general memory, but but you know, once again, it really does make sense. I guess if it can move through blood-brain barrier, that it's going to have an overall benefit in in just. You know the, the function of—it's oh, likely to have an overall benefit in function of the brain. It acts as such a powerful yes. antioxidant, and that it sort of makes sense. Now, as I said, does that mean I'm going to start going out saying, "Oh, so and so has got slightly poor memory. We're going to give him heaps of NAC." Well, I haven't seen the data on that. but mm. Certainly, I'm going—I'll be keeping my uh, eyes peeled for. I, I did think it was mm-hmm. interesting, though. In in the paper, though, they—you um, know—there was. A, part of it covered the nac showed early uh, benefit in early onset psychosis so people in early stages of the illness may actually be the ones who get a greater benefit from treatment with nac so you know that it's quite possible that when people are starting you know to have i'll say mental health issues that that might actually be the time and you know uh, you, you sort of highlighted it before when you said, "Look, eight weeks—you know—in mm. in schizophrenia didn't seem to do much, but twenty-four weeks, substantial difference." But you know that they did notice that you know that some of the evidence sort of pointed to the fact that NAC might actually protect white matter integrity in early psychosis patients. So it just you know it, it does really sort of tell me as a practitioner that if I'm going to consider using it, and if someone has just, you know, if the, the mental health issues have been relatively recent, that I probably mm. want to get onto it, you know, sooner than, than later. Is, is that what you took away from it? Yes.
1: Yeah, so it's that term neuroprogression, progression, isn't it? Where they found that those mechanistic changes that start to happen in the nervous system, in the brain, once they start to become more and more entrenched, that treatment is more likely, like the condition is more likely to become treatment resistant. So I think that was a really interesting point too, that exactly as you said, if we have the chance and the opportunity to kind of catch someone when they do have an early onset mental health condition, then it seems that NAC is going to be able to work perhaps more efficiently for them and there's going to be that chance that it's going to be able to kind of protect the brain tissue a bit more. Bipolar was also looked at. And I think there was a really kind of landmark study that was done quite a long time ago that people got very excited about on bipolar. I think it was done in 2008, if I'm remembering the um, paper correctly. And that, you know, there were quite a few studies done after that to kind of try and replicate it. But there was one study that they discussed here that providing NAC alongside someone's antipsychotic medication at 2,000 milligrams a day over 28 weeks, and that was 24 weeks of intervention and then another four weeks follow-up, found that NAC did help show significant improvement in depression scales and also bipolar rating scales at that 24-week mark compared to placebo. And then there was another quite large study as well another 24 week study at 2000 milligrams a day that found uh, NAC to significantly delay the onset of a depressive episode. So there seems to be, as it stands, a pretty good body of evidence on NAC in bipolar, or at least it tends mm-hmm. to be one of the mental health disorders that does have a bit more body of evidence in terms of NAC mm-hmm. on it, showing some you know, interesting effects. Look,
0: so bipolar, schizophrenia, not always something that practitioners are going to see. Um, as mm. I said, you know, I've, I've had a few patients come in. Uh, we, we've never dealt with their schizophrenia. They, they're happy with their current management. But I just want to turn to some of the other things uh, contained in the paper that some practitioners might see. And the paper did look at obsessive compulsive disorder. So what exactly did it sort of look at and what it find?
1: Yeah, I think an interesting thing, and like this is the peculiar particularities. I don't know quite what the right word is of evidence or research where it starts to break it down condition by condition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For obsessive compulsive disorder itself, there wasn't actually much evidence showing that it it provided benefit. But we know that OCD and that kind of group of uh, disorders that can be included in that can definitely it is related with kind of like a hyperactivity in brain regions related to that abnormal glutamate metabolism and that like we said before those high levels of glutamate can result in that excitotoxicity and oxidative stress Mm -hmm. so it seems like there's a really good rationale for it right Uh, but like I said with OCD itself it didn't seem to show much effect from an evidence perspective but then with some kind of I suppose subtypes of obsessive compulsive Mm -hmm. behaviors or conditions there was some evidence so one is trichotillomania I hope I'm saying that right. But it's the strong urge to pull out hair Mm -hmm. and that there were multiple case reports that showed it was successful in treating it and kind of helping to calm that down at doses Mm -hmm. ranging from 1,200 to that 2,400 milligram a day dose. Mm -hmm. And, again, those treatments lasting for as long as six months. So you kind of want that longer Mm -hmm. level. And -hmm. then it also looked at excoriation or skin picking and also nail biting. Mm -hmm. So one of their studies for excoriation was quite a high dose of NAC. They're they're giving Mm -hmm. 3,000 milligrams a day for 12 weeks Mm -hmm. and that they were found to have quite like definitely significant and a very substantial improvement in their skin picking behaviour. And yeah, I think that's something that I've seen reflected in clinic with people that have Mm. that tendency towards those obsessive behaviours, I definitely Mm. like had in the back of my brain that that can be quite a glutamate-driven kind of pattern or behaviour. And so that is definitely Mm -hmm. something that my mind goes to that I'm like, yes, NAC will be of benefit, but I Mm -hmm. suppose like it's reflected in this evidence, you do need to give it some time to work.
0: Mm. Uh, Absolutely. And look, very often when I am or have been – Uh, working with patients where I suspect there's a glutamate issue very often I'm increasing magnesium but you know the the data from this paper really kind of tells me that I probably do need to be considering NAC as well, you know, and and the data's pointing to that. But was there Mm. anything that didn't work well in? I mean, it seems like it's going to cure almost everything. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know, with what we've talked about
1: so far. Yeah, so uh, depression, interestingly, you know, showed some Mm. um, good evidence with bipolar, but with depression or that kind of unipolar depression, there wasn't much, many positive results there. Mm -hmm. Some of those Mm -hmm. obsessive compulsive disorders like I talked about OCD itself and also Tourette's it reviewed Mm -hmm. there wasn't um, super strong evidence there and then Mm -hmm. it had a a look at a lot of addictions you know there can be a lot of kind of substances that people can develop addictions to and it kind of broke them down and looked at them kind of one by one and there wasn't a strong body of evidence on that and I suppose that kind of takes me to one of my key take-homes from the paper which I know we'll get into next but just Mm -hmm. thinking of this one now that the the conditions where there was that really strong mechanistic involvement of that kind of trio of oxidative stress, inflammation, mm. mitochondrial dysfunction, and I suppose my fourth is that glutamate involvement, mm. NAC mm. then showed benefit. Once we right. start to head into this territory where I think things become a bit more nebulous, complex, heterogeneous, you know, they're very different for people who experience them. Mm-hmm. very multifaceted, you know, PS mm-hmm. PTSD was another one. It's like there can be a lot of drivers that cause someone to become mm-hmm. depressed or addicted to something. And there's quite mm-hmm. a few other kind of neurotransmitters at play there, isn't there? That mm-hmm. um, that was something that I kind of, as I was reading it, I took home that like oh, once there's more at play than those mechanisms, mm-hmm. NAC didn't seem, you know, and these studies are looking at, NAC as a sole intervention was it enough to kind of cut the mustard? And as a sole intervention for those particular conditions, there wasn't. There didn't seem to be a super strong body of evidence. Mm.
0: Mm. But look, and I guess that's one of the you know sort of take home messages that hopefully our listeners get from this is that you know we we are looking at you know we, we are looking at studies, and when when they actually do a study, they do not necessarily say let's, you know, put people, let's improve people's diet. Let's actually do things that might improve their gut health. Because remember, you know, the the connection basically that I see all the time now between leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier, they're kind of almost one and the same. And remember the data, even on short-chain fatty acid synthesis, you know, helps gut health but also helps blood-brain barrier, is Mm. that, you know, there's so, there's a real, I guess I'll call it, interconnection and when they do studies they are simply going to give NAC at for example you know 2400 milligrams a day. that's all they do for an intervention. And when we talk about these these studies and the scientific data, we have to realize I think as practitioners we function in a different space. You know mm-hmm. what? What practitioner is going to say? Oh, you know, you, you've got th- this this problem here. You're 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 biting your nails. You know what? All we're going to do is give you NAC at a certain dose. You know, exactly. pr- practitioners don't do that. You know, yeah. A- and I, I think it is important that when we sort of say, look, there's no data necessarily on this or no data on that, that, that or the data wasn't. You know, there was no benefit seen in the data. Well, th- th- you're only addressing one thing, and we all know just about every single health issue anyone has is rarely caused by just one thing. I mean, gunshot mm-hmm. wounds are probably the exception to that. But <laughs> yeah. with, with what we treat as, as practitioners, you, you know, they're, they're, they're complex. And and mm-hmm. I think sometimes while one intervention can have a powerful impact, it's not reasonable to think one intervention and only one intervention is what will really, you know, improve people's over health, overall health. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm. Did you have a list of – did you pen down any basic sort of limitations that you thought from the study?
1: Yeah, I think it discussed some really interesting ones that, Mm. you know, they kind of said some pretty standard things, which I also think are legitimate, like with a lot of kind of complementary interventions, that for a lot of the studies, the sample groups are small and the trials did not go for long enough. We know a clinical Mm. trial can often be a very expensive thing to run, so we can see Mm. those limitations there. And also that NAC has this really kind of robust data like body of evidence and data behind it but it's not like a medication where there is an established mm. dosing regime and so a lot yeah. of of these studies that are talked about they're trying to establish and figure out what dose they're going to give their trial participants right. based on previous evidence and so that's mm-hmm. why we have this huge kind of array of doses and so were some mm-hmm. doses too low too high mm-hmm. they're sub-therapeutic, were they're not right you know, for the patient group. So I think that's mm-hmm. something that's really interesting to kind of ponder on. Mm-hmm. Several studies talked about, which I, you know, t- took me straight back to taking it myself. Several mm-hmm. studies noted that blinding NAC, NAC can be hard because it has that sulfur smell. It has a, detector, oh, yeah. a distinctive yeah. smell. So, um, yep. you yep. know, depending how you're supplementing it, I could definitely see that that would be a challenge. And that I think a really key one here as well that I know we can all relate to as clinicians is that in the majority of trials, adherence was actually measured and assessed by pill counting. So I'm assuming they had to bring right. back in their container and check. But just because a pill had been removed from a pack doesn't mean that it had been taken and that we can see reflected in this evidence that for mental health stuff, you need to take quite a decent dose of NAC mm-hmm. for a decent period of time for it to work. So if someone mm. is frequently missing doses, then we can't get mm. that therapeutic outcome. And this can be a real a real concern and something that we need to consider, especially with our psychiatric patients. Like you can have mm. a patient who is neurotypical and who does not have a mental health diagnosis who still Mm -hmm. struggles with compliance, you know, let alone someone who might need a lot more support to be, you know, getting their things happening. So I thought um, they were all kind of pretty interesting points that could then lead to that overall, you know, they're just kind of very keen to make that black and white statement Mm. of like, oh, for this it worked, like this condition it worked, for this condition it didn't. But, yeah, exactly to your point, we we as a professional would never, ever prescribe something in isolation. Like you exactly, to your point, just saying like, how good is NAC for the glutamate aspect? How good is magnesium mm. going to be for the GABA aspect? Like, mm. you know, we're always doing things in concert with each other. So I think
0: mm.
1: nice to kind of look at the evidence and then say, how would I then take this into my clinical practice and add it into my kind of regimes, I suppose.
0: Well, well, well that's right, and and I think unfortunately we all know that compliance isn't necessarily us most patients' strong point. There, there's a, you mm. know, I guess it's the 80-20 rule, roughly. I'd say 20% of patients really good with compliance, 80% not so good. And that can be yes. fair, due to a whole range of reasons. It can be lifestyle. You know, it's not always a choice. Oh, I'm i choosing not to be compliant. But Mm -hmm. I I do think for me, it's kind of 20% of people can be really good, but that leaves 80% that probably aren't great. And and with many sort of trials, as you said, you know, if you just pop pills out of the pack, you might have popped them out of the pack. And put them down somewhere, and they have just forgotten to take them. You know, it's it's yeah. it really is a um, you know there, there there are some I'll say potential issues. I mean, let's be honest, you don't want to lock people up and medicate them every day for a trial, because as you said, they're all expensive enough as it is. Let alone, yes, well, you know, but put, putting them somewhere and basically having to look after them for six weeks, or or you know, we saw some of that data where you know we're really starting to look at benefit, you know, twenty four weeks, those things as well. Yes, I did note though. It's not realistic, and, and and especially for something like NAC, which is you know you're not going to patent anymore, are you? It's it's off patent; it's no. everyone can get it, you know. So, so that that level of research probably won't really be happening there. But look, I did note that some trials showed NAC having a clinical effect that was smaller, but still beneficial to the patient, but probably didn't reach what you'd term significance in the clinical trial as well and and i think as practitioners sometimes we you know can pick up that there was some benefit for someone and that once again we, you know if we just focus way too much on what was the trial outcome i think sometimes we're not necessarily seeing things that can give that really good sort of overall benefit but look, mm. um, we're almost out of time, so let's quickly talk about the dose because I'm pretty sure everyone's going to be saying, "So, how much should you be using?" And <laughs> you made a great point where you know some of the data might, I'll say, appear to be skewed, and that skew is because the researchers are sometimes trying to work out what <laughs> what is a therapeutic dose or or what is a beneficial sort of dose. So, what sort mm. of dose? range would you be looking at with patients?
1: I think that kind of 2400 milligram dose for six months is Mm. what seemed to show some good effects like I think Mm. I've always said that for your mental health conditions you do need to go higher than what you might have been doing for that mucolytic like chelating Mm. liver detox kind Mm. of support it's got to be up Mm. kind of around that two, two and a half milligram, um, grams, mm. I would say. Yeah. So whether or not you want to kind of give that all at once, or you want to divide the dose. Mm. Um, I did see one or two trials where they did start it out at like half the dose for a couple of weeks and then increase it to the full. Mm. And, you know, maybe mm-hmm. that's a nice way to just kind of assess how they're responding to it and and whether or not they're mm. tolerating it. Mm. So, you know, I know that there was one point made that, NAC's delayed effect may be due to its mechanism of action actually being through mm-hmm. neuroregeneration, which, right. if we look at it through that perspective, of course it's going to be a slower process, right? Mm-hmm. right. If if it has to get in there and fight this big fire of there's so much mm. cellular damage from oxidative stress, I'm I'm you know scavenging all these free radicals. I'm then that's very interrelated with. Re- reduce all of this immune activity and neuroinflammation? Are they kind of trying Mm. to get the mitochondria back online? I mentioned briefly Mm. before, like the overall net effect of that is that neurogenesis picks back up again. Like the neurons can Mm. repair themselves. They can sprout again. They can form new neural Mm. pathways. And when we have a healthy neuron, it can release and manage and self-regulate its own neurotransmission, you know. Mm. So I think that's what we're really working for and working towards Mm. and and, and it it then kind of makes sense to me why it would take longer to work.
0: Look, and I I think for me also when, you know, depending on the kind of mental health condition you're working with, I don't actually personally, just as a practitioner myself, I don't like going in with really high, with high dose supplements that the person hasn't taken before. I will usually Mm. start and I prefer a bit of a slow approach because if it, If it does, and I mean, I I didn't really find much data sort of saying NAC worsens any of this stuff, but I I don't like going in there with really huge doses because if somehow it was to cause, you know, uh, some aggravation of symptoms, you know, especially with different mental health conditions, uh, just calming those symptoms can be a really – big issue. And, and, you know, it could cause harm to the patient unintentionally, of course, but could actually harm. But, you know, and the other thing is, though, when, when we start talking about six months of treatment, well, what's the rush? (laughs)
1: exactly we've got time and like it's amazing looking at the array of doses that nac gets used for for the myriad Mm. of conditions it gets used for like i think we can be confident on some level that even if we are just starting off with a really nice low dose and we're more coming in for that first little while to assess if they're tolerating it or not like it's still going to be having benefit in their body Mm. Mm. and that will only compound over time so i agree Mm. and i you know, all of these conditions are very complex and multifaceted in their mm. own way. And and I agree there is that bit of kind of ethical and duty of care concern there mm. that we really just want to kind of go low and slow to start off yeah. with. I think that's a great way to approach things. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Look, Claire, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for spending some of your winter sunshine hours outside sitting down drinking tea and uh, reading the paper to bring us all the... Uh, <laughs> all the highlights from it. It's uh, been fantastic.
1: Yes, it was horrible, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: it was really good. I really enjoyed reading it.
0: <laughs> no, that, that, that's great. Look, thank you everyone for taking time to uh, join us today. Remember to keep an eye out for more podcasts where we'll be taking a deeper look at topics that relate both to the natural health industry itself and some as well, like today's, where we looked at different medicines that can have a positive impact on people's health. Take care, everyone. Hope to see you soon and hope to catch up with you again very soon, Claire, Take care and goodbye.
1: You too, Paul. Bye, everyone.
0: To continue the conversation or find out more about our products and educational resources, please head to biopractica.com.au. Biopractica, empowering healthcare professionals.